Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is yet another futile attempt at immortality. This is me locked in a conversation with a complete stranger. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I'm Brad Listy. Uh, I'm your host. I'm sitting in a chair in Los Angeles. You probably know that. Maybe you know that. I don't know if you know that. Uh, I have a quick plug here at the outset. If you would like a free audiobook download from Audible, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. You go there and uh, you can get yourself a free audiobook with a free uh, 45-day trial, 30-day trial, something like that. So I got a nice email the other day. It was very touching. It touched me. And uh, I get these emails sometimes. I get them every day. <laughs> by the dozen, but I rarely uh, read them on the air because uh, I feel like that would be uh, self-congratulatory and uh, possibly gross. But uh, today, I feel like congratulating myself uh, publicly. And, uh, you know, it's been a tough day. I've been very busy. I'm a little scatterbrained. I'm a little overtired. 
my self-esteem uh, has taken a hit. It's a little low. I feel like I could use a little boost. So I'm going to read you this letter uh, that comes to me from a listener named Amanda, who writes, Dear Brad, at the end of the Chris Paris Lamb episode, episode number 250, you talked about sending the podcast quote out into the universe. I was not the type of kid who wrote fan letters and am not a very good quote fan of things I like and that I am silently, if rapturously, appreciative. Lately, I have been trying to get better at writing fan mail and thank you notes because of the largely quote out into the universe nature of creative pursuits. I used to think that people who were great at what they did got enough feedback without my own entry. I thought of celebrities and authors shaking out their cramped hands after too many signatures. Probably I got this from a movie. In the spirit of my recent resolution, I wanted to write a note in appreciation of other people. I'm not really a long-time listener, or uh, the first episode I listened to was Elizabeth Ellen's, uh, which was approximately 150 episodes ago. So maybe I'm a fairly long-time listener. I listened to, uh, to Elizabeth Ellen's because I had A, just met her, and B, just read her book Fast Machine. I was very excited about Fast Machine and very nervous about talking to her because of this. The book had, quote, galvanized me. I learned more about the facts of Elizabeth's life during her Other People episode than I would for at least the next three months' worth of talking to her. This feels like a purely contemporary experience. I don't live in a kind of zeitgeisty, marketing-rich place like New York City or Los Angeles where I imagine these, these things happen a lot. So this kind of uh, thing remains both uncomfortable and exciting to me. The pleasure I take in other people is not restricted to, moment, uh, to moments like these. Generally, it inspires me and gives me joy and makes me laugh. It also espouses a possibly healthy amount of motivating anxiety. I like to listen to your earnestness and enthusiasm. Thanks for making other people. I appreciate its existence. All best, Amanda. So thank you, Amanda. That's awfully sweet of you. I appreciate hearing that. And uh, your letter also naturally makes me wonder about uh, the Elizabeth Ellen episode, episode number 99. The truth is that uh, I, you know, I often forget about what I talk about with people. I've done a lot of these. Uh, they can all sort of run together. My brain, as many of you know, can be a bit disorganized. So I figured uh, with that in mind, I would play a little bit of my conversation with Elizabeth in an effort to refresh my memory and uh, to try to see what it is that Amanda uh, was referring to or is referring to in her uh, email. So here is Elizabeth Allen from episode number 99. Uh, we got married at like two in the afternoon and we both had to work at the strip mall. <laughs> so we just went to work and nobody knew. We hadn't told anybody. So what prompted this? Was there a pro like a formal proposal or was it just like, you want to get married? Let's do it. I think we were doing acid and then. <laughs> okay. So this is, uh, this is starting to come back to me. The acid and then the wedding. He was like, do you want to get married? For real? Yeah, honestly. I feel like he kind of messed with my head when we were doing acid. Because <laughs> I had only done it once before, but he did it a lot. And uh, but, but I would have married him anyway. It wasn't like he tricked me or something. Right. So um, So were you on acid when you got married? No, no, when he oh. asked me. Okay. Uh, well, that's good. <laughs> Glad we got that sorted out. I'm just saying that, you know, you probably, I, I don't have a lot of advice to give on this show, but one thing I would say is that uh, you probably don't want to get married while you're on acid. 
when he asked you. Yeah, yeah. And that was like, what, the night before? Uh, well, no, you had to wait two weeks or something like that. I remember we had to wait or we would have gotten married sooner. Okay. But it was a month almost to the day from when I met him when he came into the store. Okay. And we just went down to the courthouse, got married, didn't tell anybody, and then um, went to work. And actually, we hadn't got the apartment yet. He was still living with his buddies, so we went back there and told them. Okay. Wow. And then what did they say? Holy well, shit. Nobody believed us. Because <laughs> we just had little $10 silver rings that we sold at the store I worked at. And little dolphin. The, 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 little, the little waves. Yeah. We had a lot of dolphin rings. <laughs> yeah. I went to school in Boulder. I saw a lot of dolphin rings, a lot of toe yeah. rings, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, I never understood the toe ring. Do you do the toe ring? No, because the, I don't know. They're annoying. They, I feel like that's kind of gross. There and, it's, it's a little, uh, I feel like yeah. it's a little uh, unhygienic or something. I never thought about it like that. So it's kind of annoying to feel it on your toe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the toe ring. And, uh, you know, I remain uh, not a fan of the toe ring. If you, you know, you don't, you're not supposed to put rings on your toes. <laughs> it's disgusting. Just leave your feet alone. Take care of your feet. But just don't adorn them with rings. Uh, if you want to hear the Elizabeth episode, uh, the Elizabeth episode, the Elizabeth Ellen episode in its entirety, episode 99, you can do that by signing up for uh, Other People Premium. What is Other People Premium? Uh, it's basically a subscription to the podcast so that you can get at the deeper archives. You can get at every single episode. And uh, here's the greatest part about it. It costs $2. That's it. Two bucks a month. And you can listen to everything. Every single episode uh, and the easiest way to do that is to just, uh, go download the free other people app. This podcast has its own app. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod touch, or Android device, whatever you have. So what you do is you go get the app. The app is free. Uh, it's also wonderful. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. Uh, and then right there within the app itself, you can sign up for other people premium for two bucks and then you have access to everything. Every single episode, hundreds of episodes at this point, right there at your fingertips, uh, whenever you want them, wherever you go. So please do that and uh, support the show. I would greatly appreciate it. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Aubrey Hirsch. She is the uh, first guest, incidentally, that I booked in the aftermath of my little uh, Twitter experiment from a few days ago at Other People Pod, where uh, I asked uh, my followers to recommend guests, and female guests in particular. So I'm very pleased to have Aubrey here, and uh, she has a story collection out called Why We Never Talk About Sugar, 
It is available now from Braddock Avenue Books. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Aubrey Hirsch, and her book, once again, is called Why We Never Talk About Sugar. I'm in my basement in my house in Pittsburgh, and uh, I'm, like, sitting in front of a giant space heater as if it is a television, and then there's a drum set directly to my right, and an air mattress behind me, and a futon to my left. It's really quite a full space. Okay, so is this like a finished basement, or is this like concrete floors and like exposed, you know, studs and that kind of thing? No, it's it's finished. It was finished in like, you know, 1971. So it's got like an amazing drop ceiling and wood paneling and uh, beige carpet. Okay, so and Pittsburgh. Yes. I don't think I've ever talked to an author who lives in Pittsburgh. I might be mistaken, but... Uh, Tell me I if, think you talked to Sal Payne, but he may have moved to Indiana by then. Yeah, no, Sal I talked to, and he, uh, by the way, what a what a sunny personality he was talking totally. to. Totally. Little like, ray of sunshine. Yeah, he's just like the nicest guy ever. But uh, he is from the area, but he I, when I talked to him, he was living in Indianapolis, not far from where I grew up. So Ah, uh, yes. Um, but yeah, I, you know, for some reason I've had this, uh, fascination with Pittsburgh lately because I've been, you know, like, you know how I like the, those listicles will get published about like totally, the yeah. most, the most underrated cities in America uh-huh. or like best places <laughs> to live. Like Pittsburgh shows up on those lists a lot because it's got like a good cost of living. Apparently there's like yeah. some kind of creative community there that's sort of stirring. Like, is it all that or, or, or do you disagree? <laughs> you know, I'm a native Clevelander, so it's hard for me to, like, really love Pittsburgh with the burning passion of some of my fellow Pittsburghers. Uh, but I do think it's good. I mean, there's good food here, and they're right about the the art scene, and, like, there's a good literary community, too. Like, I'm kind of surprised you haven't talked to, to too many people, because there are several of us, I think, who are doing cool work. Sherry Slick is here, who's, you know, like, amazing flash fiction writer. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, I like it. Okay, but it's not like, I mean, is it is it utopia? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not utopia. It's I not. guess I can't, I can't say that, especially not right now because, you know, we've been having the same terrible weather as everybody else. Where are you, Brad? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, Jesus Christ. What? what, what? <laughs> so, okay, so this, this is where the string of expletives comes in. <laughs> I'm sure your weather has been, like, amazing and beautiful and, like, oh, there's a stiff breeze. I better put on a jacket. Yeah, but see, the thing is, is that, like, right now I'm looking out my window and it's, like, it truly is, like, 75, completely cloudless yeah. skies. And I'm sure it is. It's perfect. It's perfect. But all of this perfection is laced with, like, menace because... Uh, we are in the midst of like a, a historic drought. Like it's literally, uh, it's tr- okay, yeah, yeah. so it, it's tracking to be the worst drought and I'm not even, uh, I'm not exaggerating. This is tracking to be the worst drought in 500 years. So like truly, like, yeah. So okay. like if there's a price for all this perfection, we might not have any water. <laughs> yeah, I guess I can't start on that. Well, we can send you some in like frozen form. Yeah. Just like some giant blocks of ice that we could just melt yeah. out here in the desert. But um, yeah, I'm, but I'm from the Midwest, you know, I suffered, I suffered bad weather okay. from, for most of my life. It's not like I've always lived out here and like have no idea what it means to like scrape, well, th- scrape a windshield. Listen, I like to hear that. I'm glad. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm that way too. I like when like someone else has like endured similar suffering to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to know that about somebody in order to like fully vet them. But, um, right. so Cleveland, uh, speaking of suffering, <laughs> 
because, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm from Indiana and Milwaukee, similar places, uh-huh. you know, yeah. like, I think there's a level, there's a certain like beauty and, you know, I, I miss Midwestern people. I really do. Uh, yeah, they're very friendly, posy, nice people. They are. And, you know, especially living in Los Angeles or I, I think any, any big city where there's lots of ambition and like social climbing and... I don't uh, know, yeah. like New Yorky, Los Angeles, Boston, Washington, uh-huh, uh-huh. like, you know, these, these urban centers that attract like high achiever people or whatever, sure. <laughs> um, I think maybe don't necessarily foster the kind of, um, just neighborly kindness that like you get in the Midwest or is that an oversimplification? I mean, no, like, I think that's in Cleveland where no one has any ambition. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone's Because <laughs> so if they nice. did, they would have gotten the hell out of Cleveland. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I don't know. Did you like growing up in Cleveland? Do you have fond memories of it? Or is it one of those places that you're like glad to put in your rearview mirror? Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe a little bit of both. I, I do. I do love Cleveland. You know, I have a soft spot in my heart for Cleveland because it's my home and there's lots of cool stuff about Cleveland. Like there's a brilliant art museum um, and you know, the rock and roll hall of fame is I, there. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. And we do love our sports teams, even though they always let us down. Um, but I think I was, I was definitely ready to go when it was time to go. And you went straight to Pittsburgh? I did. I went straight to Pittsburgh for my MFA, but then uh, I moved to Colorado for a couple of years to do a fellowship and then back to Pittsburgh. So, Okay. Okay. So growing up in Cleveland, um, yeah. like artistic family? Um, yeah, I would say that actually. Yeah. Both my parents were uh, middle school English teachers in the same school. So like if you went there, you either got my mom or you got my dad. Did you go there? I did not go there. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Because I was, I was no. like my friend, one of my best friends growing <laughs> up, like his mom was the school nurse. And uh-huh. I, I think it tormented him. Just having your mom, yeah. at ju- just having your mom at junior high, you don't want that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> junior high is terrible enough and scarring enough without your parents there with you. Do you think that your parents were, were your parents like the beloved kind of teachers or were they the kind of teachers that maybe the kids were like, Ugh, you know, like too much homework or whatever? I, th- I think they were beloved. I know my dad started this, like, after-school program where if if the kids, like, did all their homework and didn't get into trouble, then they got to stay after school and play basketball with the teachers, yeah. which they all, like, really liked to do that. And uh, I think they all thought that was pretty cool and kept them out of trouble and stuff. Okay. So he could, like, he could hang, you know? Like, oh, yeah. I just remember, like, there were certain teachers who were just, like, so beloved. And, like, part of it, I think, sometimes was uh, rooted in, like, how permissive they were. Yeah. Uh, you know, teachers that were too strict obviously weren't going to be um, winning high marks. But, you know, I think back to this one teacher who, like, you just simply could not get in trouble in her class. There's nothing you could do that would make her angry. Like, you could walk in, like, 10 minutes late with, like, McDonald's and she'd be like, hey. <laughs> you know, and, but she was, she was, like, sainted. Everyone loved her. But, like, in, in hindsight, I, like, I wondered, like, did anyone learn a fucking thing in that class? <laughs> So. Well, I mean, what do you really retain from middle school anyway? Yeah. I think I've retained nothing. Yeah, I mean, this la- the lady that I'm speaking of, who's actually no longer with us, she was in high school. Um, okay. But, but I mean, I, I still love her. Like, she was so nice. <laughs> She's so nice. Nothing you, I mean, like, literally nothing you did, nothing you did yeah. could make her angry. It was almost, it was strange, actually. So, <laughs> um, anyhow, so growing up, uh, lots of, do you have siblings, big family, only child? I do. I have two sisters. Okay. Uh, and... 
you know, my parents were Irish, so my older sister's a year older than me, and my younger sister's a year and a half younger than me. So they were Irish, and then they they are no longer Irish. Is that <laughs> no? We're Irish. Oh, okay. There's a present tense verb there. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. So, um, <laughs> so like the Irish thing, like you have your kids in rapid succession. Yes. That's like a. Yeah. That's like a, a. I mean, I know they the joke about Irish twins, but is that something that they actually? Um, communicate like culturally like we need to have kids in rapid succession well (laughs) i don't know i don't know if there was much communication like we have to have kids in rapid succession but it is i mean it's kind of like a catholic thing right like you just have a hundred kids just have all the kids all the time and i guess if you're going to do that you don't want to waste any time well yeah see my i come from a catholic parents both of my parents are you know southern catholic and uh, my Uh mother my mother comes from a family of nine children and like that oh was, yeah, it was, I mean, my grandmother, um, you know, who's no longer with us. She, uh, is, was like 90 pounds soaking wet. She had nine babies. So she was, wow. she was pregnant, like from like the age of like 27 to the age of 42, like every, oh I mean, it's absurd. It's like a clown car, but, um, <laughs> I just, I think about that and like that era and like, that was an actual thing. Like they didn't use birth control. Like they, yeah, totally. that's insane. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. But your parents only had three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a different generation. So like maybe they, I feel like our generation, and I don't even know if you're in my generation, but I feel like my generation, <laughs> what generation are you in, Aubrey? <laughs> I'm in, oh my God, do I have to pick, I need to take one of those like BuzzFeed quizzes of yeah. like, what generation are you in? I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm 31. I was born in 1982. So I'm not quite a millennial. I want to be yeah. a millennial. I feel like millennials <laughs> get more ink. Like, I think I'm Generation X technically, but Generation X is so boring. No one gives a shit about Generation X. Like, yeah, it's true. I want to be a millennial. I feel like uh, yeah. I feel in my soul like attached to the idea of being a millennial somehow. That's true. They're uh, designing all the good cell phone games for anyway. Yeah, exactly. I feel, and I feel like you know, there's something about it. Like you were born at the dawn of the millennium. It's like the 9/11 generation. They've had dramatic. Yeah. They've grown up in a time of like uh, a ravaged economy. Like there's something dramatic about that generation, and like. Generation X is just a, like a like a footnote. I'm just a I'm a meaningless speck. <laughs> do you know <laughs> well, we do have a sense of perspective. No, it is true though. My students uh, were writing essays. I had them write essays about like a important cultural object, and like a hundred of them wrote about the iPhone. And the iPhone for some of them was their first cell phone. Yeah, that'll make you feel old. I mean, I just, it was mind blowing. I couldn't believe it. Like, not even old, but just, I feel so, like, I'll never understand them and they'll never understand me. We'll never be able to bridge this divide. That's like when I was, uh, I was teaching, uh, like, freshman comp at Santa Monica College. And I want to say we had to give, I gave my students some sort of survey that I think the university wanted me to give them. Um, or the English department wanted me to give them. And it was like, name yeah. your, name your, you know, the 10 books that had the biggest impact on you. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And it was like Harry Potter. It was all Harry <laughs> Potter. And like, I'm surprised I could name 10 books. Yeah. I mean, you know, like it was like, it really was kind of just like disturbing. It was like, this is the only thing these people have ever read or like even heard about, you know, it was like, totally. and I feel like maybe fit, you know, 50 years prior or even less than that. I feel like the answers would have been significantly different. And I don't mean to bag on Harry Potter because I think it's great for kids. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I guess if you're 18, I don't know, you're, you're, you don't, you haven't been around that long and you're reflecting back on like meaningful reading experiences in childhood. But, um, you would hope that like somebody who's graduated high school 
has in the aftermath of their Harry Potter experience, like, you know, had some sort of like significant reading, um, experience that would, you know, uh, you know, to overtake that, but I guess not. Yeah. I mean, they must have to read the same stuff we all read, right? Like to kill a mockingbird and whatever the sun also rises and grapes of wrath. Don't they still have to read those things? Well, that's, I was just going to ask you, like, has that changed? Cause you're a few years younger than I am. And like, I wonder like, do you ever think about, like, contemporary literature and especially, like, literature that's being written by your contemporaries or my contemporaries? And, like, what books eventually are going to re- replace yeah. the, the Grapes of Wrath? Because I feel like we've been stuck with, like, Vonnegut, Hemingway, uh, Steinbeck. Yeah. Not, you know, no no disrespect to those uh, authors, but, like, when is there going to be a shift and what books will, you know, take hold in academia? It's an interesting process that, like, doesn't get talked about all that much and you know, how do those decisions get made? How do they become viral? You know, how did all of these, yeah. how did all these academic institutions, um, you know, make some sort of collective judgment that like, we all need to read Slaughterhouse Five in like ninth grade or whatever, you know, like, do you understand? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, your, your experience sounds better than mine. I feel like you're being generous with the Kervonica thing. I, I did not read a living writer until I was in college. No shit. Like, yeah, literally. I mean, I remember, you know, people always ask that question, like, when did you first realize you want to be a writer or whatever? And when I was in high school, everybody we read was like Fitzgerald and Steinbeck. And, you know, I think the uh, most modern writer I'd read was Hemingway. And I didn't think it was an option. Like, I thought saying you wanted to be a writer was like saying you wanted to be like a Saying, butter turner or like a blacksmith. Like, saying, like, like I saying, thought I missed my window. Saying that you wanted to be dead. Right. <laughs> so yeah. basically I have to be deceased before I can do this. Well, I just thought it was over. Like I thought it was like one of those professions that you read about in history books when you're like, oh yeah, like that would have been cool to be like a sword maker or a feudal lord, but I guess that's over. Well, but you know, and that's interesting because as teachers who are trying to get students interested in books and to, are trying to impart the value of uh, literature and like what it can do for, yeah. for your life, like wouldn't it make more sense to be handing um, young students books that are really contemporary and that speak to their more immediate experience in addition to some of the classics? I mean, because I'm not trying to poo-poo like the value of those books but i you know after sure. a while it's like okay like the roaring 20s were awesome but like i'm living in a you know uh, post 9-11 iphone world or whatever you know and or even like in the obligatory creative writing unit you know that like terrible anemic effort that high school teachers give in the course of their literature class like couldn't you there just hand around like you know a little amy bender or edgar Corrette or something just just to show them, like just one. Right. Just to say that like, people are still doing this. It is possible. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can write about your your immediate experience, and it's still valid. You know. Yeah, it would have been helpful for me to know. I went into college thinking I was going to study chemistry. I was a chemistry major for two years before I figured out that people could still be writers. Oh, really? Okay. So you have both sides of the brain working then. Well, working to some some level. Yeah, but that's unusual because I think a lot of writers, myself included. Uh, well, I, mean, I don't know. I, it's like I hit a wall in high school, and chemis- yeah. chemistry was like part of the wall. It was a brick uh-huh. in the wall. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but I, I mean, I distinctly remember it because I had an, an easy time as a student, and then I think yeah. the hitting the wall was like partially due to me just like losing steam and like just losing interest in doing the dance, and then part of yeah, it was that 
Yeah. And then part of it was like, I, this is just, I don't, you know, I remember chemistry just being kind of like Greek to me or just completely uninteresting, uh, you know? Oh, wow. I see. I had totally like the opposite experience. I, I'm very sciencey. So I always like love science. I found it super interesting. And then it wasn't though until after I left college, I stopped studying chemistry and I started uh, studying physics, like not, not uh, in school, but just like reading, you know, like Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene, you know, people who write stuff for the general reader, something right. like that. Yeah. And uh, I think it's like so unbelievably and wildly creative. The problem is just that nobody tells you that when you have to learn your foundation. Like no one's like, hang in there because this stuff is going to get unbelievably creative and interesting and weird. You know, it's like they act like all the problems have already been solved because you're sort of going through the motions of what everyone before you has done. Well, and yeah, it's an interesting point to make, too, that like the great scientists, the ones whose names we remember and the ones who, um, you know, are, are the cause of these big leaps in understanding and these big scientific advancements in their time, you know, at the time that they're making uh, these leaps and doing this research, they're often considered com like heretics by the scientific community. Oh yeah, sure. And yeah. you know, they, and like you say, it's a very creative act. Like you know, and Einstein spoke about this, and you know, there's like quotes on T-shirts and bumper stickers and whatnot. But yeah, um, I don't know. It's like that. That's very true, and it's like worth remembering that. Uh, you know, you sort of in order to be like a great scientist, you have to kind of, uh, well, you have to be creative, and then you also have to, in some ways, work against. Uh, conventional knowledge. I think that's true, and I think it gets it gets like super narrative too when you get into the stuff. Like you know, I you have to stop me if I science out on you too much. But like you know, the big thing they're trying to do now is try and rectify the the um, big things like gravity, special relativity, with the small things with quantum mechanics. Blah blah blah. It's like both these things they know to be true, but they can't make a mass bridge between them to make them all work. And, like, the theories that they've got going about, like, how this could be possible, like, maybe there's this particle called the graviton that is not grounded to our brain world, and maybe, you know, that we're really living in this multiverse and gravitons are weak because they can move between brains. I mean, it's like, I don't know, unbelievable. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think that uh, we understand so little you yeah. know, about our reality. It's easy to think like, oh, they got it all figured out and, you know, it's just the details. But like the truth right. is that we're like barely skimming the surface. And, um, you know, uh, God, it's hard to even talk about this stuff without sounding like an idiot. But there's part, there is a part of me, okay? Because I, I, some, I sometimes pay attention to this and I'm interested sure. in the idea of um, the collective consciousness and the way that, um, you know, the self is illusory and the way in which um, what we see this is the fundamental thing that I'm getting at. Like okay. what, what we see on our, on a daily basis with our human eyes yeah. uh, is um, like just a, uh, like a, not an illusion, but it's just a small piece of like this larger reality. Uh, sure. And there, I don't know if you've ever like read or listened to Terrence McKenna. And I don't mean to like sound like I'm some sort of uh, disciple of this guy because I don't know, you know, and I'm not brave right. enough to do hallucinogens like he did. <laughs> uh, there's a part of me that wants to try it because it just sounds so fascinating in, in a similar uh -huh. in a similar way that um, you were describing when you were talking about your love of like Stephen Hawking and, you know, people who can kind of translate these uh, yes. complexities. Yeah, yeah. But 
you know, he talks about these hallucinogenic experiences where at like a mega dose, when certain parts of your brain are stimulated, oh my um, God. you're, you know, all of a sudden you see like these machine elves. Like that's how, cause he, he doesn't, he's like, he's like, you, he's like, you can't English it. He's like, you can't put it into English what you see, but it's not just him. It's like at a mega dose, like he'll see them. Other people yeah. will see them. They'll come back from these experiences and be like, did you see the elves? And there's, wow. there's a part of me because this appeals to my sense of humor as well. Is that like, yeah. we're, we're doing all this like really like, you know, stodgy, like conservative scientific research and thinking about like the quark and whatnot. And it's like, no dude, like there are fucking like machine elf aliens. That are like this is a computer program and they're just messing with us. Like that. Well, that, that would definitely be something. I mean, you know, if, if Brian Greene's next book comes out and it's like, Chapter one, machine elves. I will, I will be surprised. <laughs> well, hey, I, I'm just saying, like, I'm not saying that's true. I think it's, uh-huh. if, if it were, it would make me, it would amuse me greatly and maybe frighten yeah. me a little bit. But like, I think what it is for me is it's like, uh, maybe, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, that's yeah. true. Who knows is absolutely right. Right. And, you know, maybe, I don't know. I'm no scientist. Maybe this guy's been disproven as like a complete quack. But if you've ever heard him talk, he's one of the greatest talkers I've ever heard in my life. Okay, I never heard him, but I'll look him up, and I'll I'll keep my fingers crossed that you know when they're running during through the LHC, keep my fingers crossed for the machine elves. The machine elves, yeah. But uh, and if you ever you know decide to take five dried grams of uh, psilocybin mushrooms. <laughs> oh God, I don't think that's in my future. At least not not on purpose. Yeah, you're supposed to do it alone in a in a dark room. Uh, really? That sounds terribly dangerous. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's better than doing it in like a stadium full of people at a rock concert, which is like what I think a lot of college students do. And Yeah, maybe that's true. But I, don't you want someone there to call 911? I don't know. I yeah. get, I'm very scared of hard drugs. Yeah, so. no. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I would do this if I had the courage, but I don't have the yeah. courage. <laughs> yeah, I also have a child. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Well, that, does, that throws a wrench. Honey, don't bother daddy. Daddy's gonna be, <laughs> Daddy's talking to the machine elves. You got to send the kid away for a weekend or whatever. <laughs> oh God! Uh, I hope I didn't. I, do, do I sound crazy to, for bringing that up? I think I'm just trying to. I'm talk, trying to talk about how little we know. That's what I'm trying I, to talk. Yeah, about. I think you sound like a good amount of crazy. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. So, uh, growing up, uh, two sisters, academic parents, you know, who are probably encouraging of your, uh, you know, were they? Did, did you indicate as a writer at a young age? Like, did you? exhibit literary um inclinations i mean i guess if you wound up studying chemistry maybe it wasn't quite that clear yeah i mean i I definitely really liked writing like i was always writing and i was always reading you know i wrote like i'm and i'm doing air quotes i know you guys can't see me but you know i wrote several air quotes novels (laughs) and air quotes when i was like a little kid about like orphan children you know running away from home like that that kind of thing, like I terrible. I still, terrible. I still use air quotes to describe my novels. <laughs> I see. I haven't written one without air quotes yet. Maybe someday. Who's <laughs> hoping? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did. I did do like a ton of writing. But then, like I said, I just, I think I just got really discouraged because I didn't understand that it could still happen. That's crazy. I mean, like your parents didn't tell you as English teachers, or like I guess like I, you know, I don't think I ever voiced it like I don't think I ever said to them like hey isn't it a bummer how you can't be a writer anymore (laughs) I think it was just like a a thing that I picked up from the universe around me and then it just kind of like killed it and then also I remember getting in trouble like in high school 
I got in trouble a couple of times. A couple of different teachers would accuse me of, like, plagiarizing my stuff. Like, oh, like, one one of my uh, English teachers wrote at the end of one of my essays, like, uh, good essay, Mom. Do you want to come help me grade? And I was like, what? I brought home to my mom who had to, like, call her and explain to her that she didn't have time to do her child's homework for her. And after that, I had to stay after school and write all of my essays in front of my teacher. And I think the lesson I took from that was, like, don't work too hard or <laughs> you're going to end up in trouble. Yeah, this sounds like a very a deeply wise educator that you were in the hands oh, of. God, that was terrible. Oh, yeah, okay. really terrible. So uh, you were a good student? Like, you were, were you a good kid? Did you ever give your parents trouble? Did you ever exhibit? Uh... Yeah, I was a good student, but I was a really badly behaved child. I was always in trouble at school. My only memories of, like, school up until fourth or fifth grade were of standing outside the classroom being in trouble. And then there was, like, this huge intervention when I was in third grade when, like, my parents and my daycare provider and my teachers all got together and sat me down and were like, okay, starting now, it's going to be the new Aubrey, and we're leaving the old (laughs) Aubrey behind, and now it's going to be like this. And then anytime I would do something bad, they would say, like, that's something the old Aubrey would do. It was, like, really how dramatic. How old were you when this was happening? Like, eight or nine. Okay. okay. <laughs> and this wasn't, like, high school. <laughs> no, I mean, I wasn't, like, you know, skipping school and doing drugs. It was just, like, stupid kid stuff, like, talking out of turn. Or I would, like, get the whole class together and, and like, convince everybody to go outside to recess when it was, like, school time do things like that get so, in trouble so but you were like you were sort of like a pied piper good socially but like maybe uh i don't know it just sounds it sounds like you were just mischievous mischievous yeah i was i was clever and i would use my power for evil instead of good <laughs> <laughs> um all right so you get uh you get out of high school is there, is there anything significant that happened to you in your youth that like you feel like drove you into uh writing or was formative before we get on to college? God, was there? No, I don't think so. Okay. The opposite. The opposite. You had a good yeah. child. You had a good childhood. Yeah, I did. Okay. I did. All right. So you get to college. Where did you go to undergrad? I went to undergrad at John Carroll University in Cleveland. Oh, in, okay. So you stayed home, went to John Carroll. Yeah. And uh, studied chemistry for two years. For Yeah, for a couple years I studied chemistry. And then I took a fictional writing class. Uh, just to fill a requirement, you know, it was a liberal arts school, so I had a big core. And then um, I really liked it. And at the end of the class, our teacher made everybody in the class submit a story for publication so that we would know the process. And mine got published. And, you know, my teacher, like, made a big deal out of it. She was like, this has never happened before. She was very excited. I was very excited. And then I think I was like, man, maybe I hadn't better be a chemist. Interesting. Who published it? A little magazine called Kaleidoscope. Okay. That's unusual. That Was that your first short story? Yeah. It was the first <laughs> thing I ever wrote. Yeah. It's okay. Have you experienced any rejection since then? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> then, okay. And don't worry. My ego got hugely inflated because I was like, oh, my God, I'm only 19 years old and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then, of course, it was like three solid years of nothing but terrible soul-crushing rejection before my next, next acceptance. Did you, so. get, did you find yourself getting like once you got the first story published and then you tried to do it again? Did, did like yeah. self-consciousness creep in? Like suddenly like, oh, God, you know, like. 
Oh, yeah. I, I mean, there was, like, a lot of feeling of, like, maybe that was it. Like, maybe I just had that one story. Like, I had one good story, and now I wrote it, and now I'm done. Right. You know, I definitely spent a lot of time thinking about that. But it was another sort of happy accident that kept me going. So after that happened, you know, I switched to uh, being an English major, and then for beyond that, I had one writing professor who was great, very encouraging of me, who told me I should go and get an MFA, and uh, so I applied to MFA programs, but of course, in the same breath, he told me it was competitive, and that the funding was really competitive, and I wouldn't have gone without funding. So I also applied into the Peace Corps, thinking like, that would be really cool, it'd be fun to travel, I was like into service, Uh, and so I was hoping for an MFA program, but then the Peace Corps was like my fallback. And then, lo, I got rejected from the Peace Corps, which I didn't even know could happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the Peace Corps is competitive, I think. Yeah. Well, I know that now. Uh, but I got into an MFA program, so I did that instead. Okay. And you got into the MFA program at Pittsburgh? At the University of Pittsburgh, yeah. Okay. And uh, by the way, what was that short story, your first short story that got published? What was it about? It was about, um, it's actually in my book, too, which will tell you how long that short story question has been coming together, but it's called Strategy Number 13 Journal, and it is sort of, it's sort of based on the true story, uh, though not wholly, as I was 19 when I wrote it, uh, but it's about a girl and her father has multiple sclerosis, and my father has multiple sclerosis, so it was a lot just about sort of like the family dynamic, and then there's like a, a whole bunch of fictionalization in the story. In the story, the family really completely falls apart, which is not what happened with my family, but, you know, it makes a better story. Yeah. Well, yeah, it doesn't, it's not a good story if the family stays together. Come on. Right. Totally not. <laughs> Um, all right. So then you go on to get your MFA at the University of Pittsburgh and you're all in at this point. Are you thinking like, I'm going to write books and make a living writing books? And we, how did you? Cons- well, I, <laughs> I think I was smart enough to know that no one makes a living writing books. I, I hope I was smart enough you, to you, know that. <laughs> I wasn't. I, I figured that out like two years ago. Oh, no. Well, I'm glad I didn't have to be the one to tell you just now. <laughs> yeah. That, that would have been awkward. That would have been devastating. Yikes. Uh, but I think then I thought, um, I could teach and I liked, you know, I was teaching, I was doing a teaching assistantship while I was there and I really liked it. And so I could sort of see into a future for myself teaching and writing. Well, and you're the daughter of teachers. So this seems like you were born to it in a way. Totally. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, and you wanted to teach college. Yeah, I, I liked it. I mean, I, I can't imagine teaching middle schoolers. My parents have far, far more patience than I do. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, I dropped my daughter off at like her preschool and I'm just like, who are these saints who do Yeah, <laughs> I know it. Oh, I know it. To be, but you know, there are people who are wired. I mean, especially for like really young kids. Um, yeah. you know, you can just see that there's a per- certain adult personality that like they're, j- they're almost like they're so animated and sunny. Yeah. And- Um, I would be the worst preschool teacher. (laughs) Yeah, no. And I'm not good with kids either. Like kids don't like me. Do you have kids? I have one kid. He likes me. My my own kid. I'm good with my own kid, but with other people's kids, no. I've gotten better. I've gotten mean, like I, you know, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm not one of those people that like kids, like strangers, kids just like come up to and like start hugging their leg. But yeah, (laughs) um, having a child has helped me learn like how to communicate with children. Yeah. Um, 
or at least I think that. I mean, I don't know. I just maybe it's just that I'm more comfortable. It's like, oh, you're a kid. Oh, you're three. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Like I can talk. They can to you. smell fear, kids. Yeah, exactly. So I don't have as much fear around them. Uh, and I think you know, I think it's common. People without kids. It's amazing how like before I had a child. Yeah. I, just looking at the world, moving around. Like I didn't even notice families or parents. And then like now I'm out and about, and I see a family with a young child, and I'm like, oh, like. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I yeah, feel, I, feel I like, do. I feel like I've become a lot more in tune with it, which I guess is natural. But it's just, it's sort of amazing to me that, like, you know, back in my single days or whatever, like how completely detached I was from the entire notion. Sure. <laughs> well, yeah, you de- you definitely notice it more, I think, and you just have like empathy, more em- empathy, empathy, and you're like, ooh, like check out that stroller, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. Uh, okay, so you're thinking academically. Like, when did you start to uh, like work as a writer and like think of it as like at least part of your occupation? <sighs> Man, that's a good question. I think you know. I know there definitely was a point because now I will say, you know, unequivocally, I will say I'm a writer. You know, what do you do? I'm a writer. Or if I'm going to some kind of like women in the arts gathering and you have to put something on your name tag that identifies you as a woman in the arts, I will put writer. No problem. Do you have business cards that say writer? I have business cards, but they don't say writer. They just have my uh, email address on them. Okay. Um, But, and I know that there was a point where I would not say that, where I would say, you know, oh, I'm a teacher and I write or something like that. But I don't know exactly where where it crossed over. I know it was definitely I was definitely not comfortable saying I'm a writer until I had like a lengthy enough list of publications where if someone followed up with what have you written, I could answer in a convincing way. Right. You know, like oh well, I've had stuff here, 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 and here. Yeah. Um, well, that's actually I don't know. that's interesting because like I remember. Like I'm of two minds on this. Like it's you know it's a little bit presumptuous to start telling people you're a writer before you've published anything. But like, sure. especially if you're working on a novel and you're genuinely working on it, it's kind of helpful. Yeah. It's helpful to tell people, yeah. uh, especially people who mean something to you, uh, you know, that you're doing this because then there's a level of accountability that enters the equation. You know, where you you see them and they're asking you about the book, and if you're not working on it, you feel like shit and. Then you sort sure. of you sort of feel obligated to come through because you've made such a fuss about telling everybody that you're doing this and yeah no I think you hit it on the head I think it wasn't like any kind of like uh, discomfort with the word it probably just was like a kind of fear like I felt afraid to say I'm a writer and then the person would follow up and I would be like oh I don't know nothing <laughs> right <laughs> I, I work in English yeah right <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So you're, you're writing these stories, you're publishing them, uh, in, you know, small journals and online. And is that what, you know, is that how you built up the collection? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then how, like, what about your, uh, cause what did you say? You're 31? Yes. Okay. So you're, you know, you were born to the internet, um, you know, born into the world of the internet far more than I was because like you know, seven years makes a difference in the world. Yeah. Seven years. I wouldn't say I was born into the world of the internet though. I mean, I, I very vividly remember like when we were 13 years old getting, you know, prodigy and then America online and having to like keep a tally of your hours, you know, like we, there are five people in my family and we would get like the, whatever it was 20 hours a month, which meant we each got four hours a month of internet 
Okay. You know, like it wasn't like it is now. Okay, but still, like you, like ever since you were an adolescent, you've been online. Like I got, yeah. I got email, yeah, I got email when I was in like college. Like my okay. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, sure. there were no. I didn't come. To, I didn't go to college with a computer. You know what I'm saying? Like that's right. Sort of thing. So right. okay, that's fair. Um. So with regard to the literary scene, uh, you know, online and your um, you know, uh, entry into the world of letters or whatever, like how cognizant were you of the online literary world and how big of a uh, role did it play in your development? Oh, I would say pretty big. I mean, it's, it's fantastic to have access to all of this work, you know, especially when you're in college and you can't afford to subscribe to literary magazines. You know, it's great to be able to just click around and see all this fantastic stuff. And it's so great for sharing. And it's really great, I think, for platform building. You know, like, I definitely have gone from one side of this to the other. Like, I remember when I was first publishing, being very covetous of print publications. You know, I wanted my stuff in a book, on my shelf. You know, I just felt like that was better, it was more prestigious or whatever. And maybe it is still more prestigious, but now I just want eyeballs on it. You know, like, I, I've come I've come around the other way. Like, now where if somebody asks me for work or something and they're a print magazine, I have to really, like, think about it. You know, it's like a death sentence. Even, like, a good print magazine, you know, I don't know. How many people are going to see it? 500? Right. Maybe? Right. Uh, so where do you, what, what, what websites like online were you, did you become covetous of as you made this like mental transition? Um, well, I've always loved Pank. I think they're great. And, uh, I sent some early work there and I was really happy when it got accepted there. Um, and I love that Hobart has kind of switched to some online stuff. And then there's some places like when this was happening that now I don't think publish anymore. Like, Flatman Crooked. I used to remember reading their work a lot. Right. Um, and is Anna Lemma still publishing? I'm not sure if they're still publishing yeah. or at any rate, not maybe not as regularly. Or, But um, I remember going there and reading the work and thinking it was cool and interesting. And Diagram, I love Diagram. That's a place that I had been trying over and over to get into and always failing. Okay, so did were you and then were you, was there also a social aspect to it? Like were you meeting other writers online? As, oh yeah. Yeah, okay. definitely. Definitely. Like so okay, so how? Like were you just reading their stuff and then tracking them down and then like befriending them on Facebook or Yeah, I think well, in the beginning when I first started, I think it was even before Facebook or before Facebook was like important to me anyway. But like you could send emails to people or they could email you and that was like so cool like I remember when I sent an early story to Pink and Roxanne was the one who emailed me back to say that they would take it and you know I had no idea who Roxanne Gay was and I'm very very happy to call her a friend now but like just having that little bit of communication where it was like oh I, I love this story it's sexy and dark and being like, whoa, someone I don't know is talking about my work. That is super, super cool. And then of course now it's really easy because like you say, you can friend them on Facebook or like I use Twitter all the time. I, I'm preferring Twitter to Facebook um, as Facebook is making more and more terrible, terrible changes. Um, but it's great to just be able to tweet at people, you know, and to you, Brad, when you 
when you said, you know, are there any women writers that I should be interviewing on my podcast? And I said, yes, there are. Do you know how I, I, I was shocked? I mean, <laughs> I, I knew I would get some responses, but like, I really got a lot of responses, like a, sure. a lot. And, uh, it almost made me think like I should have done this earlier, but I think I've resisted doing that on social media for a long time. Cause I was, I don't know what I was thinking. Like maybe it would be, what were you thinking? I don't know. It's like, I feel like I need, <laughs> I feel like I need to have, uh, maybe I thought I needed to have more control over booking a show in a way that felt authentic to me. And like, I didn't uh -huh. want to, I didn't want to yeah. get cornered into like having, you know, but I think right. it's good to get suggestions, and I think I need to listen to my listeners more often and try to talk to people that they want to hear from, you know? Well, you know, and it doesn't hurt even to use it as a part of it. But, like, crowdsourcing is such a great thing. Like, if I'm going to teach a, a class and I'm like, hey, tell me about some experimental essays you guys like, it's, it's awesome to then have, like, 10 people respond, and then you read 10 cool, interesting new essays. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, like or or like you know, how do I fix this lamp? You know, like yeah, totally. It, it can be useful in that way too. So, um, one thing I forgot to ask you that I want to make sure I ask you before we proceed is when you talked about the shift that you made in college from chemistry to English. Um, yeah, you mentioned that creative writing class that you took and like writing that story that got published in Kaleidoscope, but. Um, was there any like reading experience, like a singular reading experience that sort of uh, opened your eyes or, you know, catalyzed your uh, interest? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I would cite like some of the ones that everybody does. Like definitely Vonnegut was a moment where I was like, whoa, this is interesting. And I remember reading Catch-22 and thinking that was pretty cool. And Ray Bradbury, like I said, I'm science-y, so I love like reading science fiction. Um, but I think for me, the moment was reading Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Okay. And, you know, people get down on Chuck Palahniuk, and that's fine. But Why, why, I, do, they, why do they get down uh, on him? Why do they get down I on him? I don't know. I, I just, I hear a lot of people say, like, disparaging things about him, or, like, it's too pulpy, or it's not crafty enough for people but like i read i read fight club and then i read everything you know i read invisible monsters i read diary i read everything that that he had written up to that point and chuck Palahniuk, you know all of his books are really written in a very similar voice and that totally became like the voice in my head like that was like I, when i would walk around like narrating my life it was in the voice of chuck Palahniuk. and for sure that first story that i wrote i mean like you can you can read like you know, especially this one middle section of it. And, and you would imagine that if Chuck Blonick were a 19 year old woman with less experience and talent, he had written that. Back then. <laughs> You're like, you I, know I, mean? I actually plagiarized an entire passage from fight club in the middle of my story. <laughs> well, you know, just in terms of tone and syntax and structure, right. you know, the, the words are all my own, but definitely like in that voice, for sure. But I needed that, you know, like I needed to, to try manipulating language in a new way. And Chuck Blana talk would do that. Yeah, no, you have to do that. I mean, I, I think there's a, that's absolutely natural and a, a totally positive thing to do. And I guess like yeah. maybe in writing, there's like, like sometimes I think this kind of like, uh, misguided, uh, value placed on originality or I don't know. I, I guess I shouldn't, put too much emphasis on this because I think most people get it. You start out by playing cover songs, essentially, of your favorite writers. Sure. And, oh, sure. And then yeah. eventually you write your own stuff. But I think sometimes it's like, oh, this is too derivative. And it's like, well, what isn't derivative? I mean, come on, you know? Yeah. 
so okay, so nowadays, uh, how are you working? Like, how do you do? How do you do it? Um, <laughs> like every day, uh, every morning, super disciplined, kind of like. No, in, in I wish I was like. I wish I was like that. And I'm outing myself now because I always tell my students that that's what they have to do. You know, I'm, and I'm very unequivocal about it. But, um, but it's not what I do. And, and to be honest, like I, I would blame it on my kid because my kid is so young. But even before I had my kid, I was never like that. Like these are my two hours in the morning when I write or whatever. Um, I'm not good at doing it like that. But I do, I do also try to stay away from like the mythology of inspiration. Like, oh, I wait until the lightning hits me. I don't do that. You know, I don't believe in that really either. Or maybe it's true for some people, but I would be waiting like forever. I would never write anything. So I actually tend to work best when I'm in a pressure crunch. Like if I have like a whole day to write, it's almost like it's too too much pressure, you know, like where I feel like, oh my God, I'm going to waste this time. This time is so precious. Like I have to come out of this day with something amazing. Whereas if I only have like 20 minutes and then I have to run to a meeting, I'm sort of like, well, who cares if I'm only writing crap? I only have 20 minutes anyway. And then it, I end up being able to write better, like in that little chunk of time. And then I go to my meeting, I spend my whole meeting you know, writing the next paragraph in my head, and then I can't wait to rush back to the computer for whatever, my half an hour before I have to go to class, and then I'm writing more in my head during class, and then I'm back to my computer. So I kind of, like, do do best when I'm just, like, catching it a little piece at a time. Interesting. And, you know, it makes me think about, like, these writers who are super prolific, like Stephen yeah. King and Joyce Carol Oates and, you know, Ray Bradbury, these guys who can just like crank out copy. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, you can argue about quality. I, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in just the productivity. And I think sure. that, like in order to be that way, like I wonder what it is. Like, do you have some sort of like neurological, you know, neurological condition or um, are you just able to somehow silence or ignore your inner critic? Like, is that what these people can do? Like they can just sit down and like just let it flow because they're just not doing the neurotic stuff that I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and aren't like, you know, clicking over to their Gmail every 10 seconds. No, they're just, yeah, they're just writing fiction. They're in it or whatever they're writing, you know? And I, uh, I'm amazed by that. And, you know, I guess it's different strokes. They're sort of the, the anomalies I would, I would argue. I think that most writers work at a much slower pace and, yeah. Um, it's a, it's a much greater struggle, but like 10,000 words a day or whatever Stephen King claims to be getting, which I don't doubt by the way, because of his, output um that's sure, a, yeah that's absurd <laughs> yeah it's crazy no i'm definitely not that kind of writer and and i wish i was and like i said i advise other people to be but you're right it is just my neuroses i mean you know like whenever i see myself like oh my god why haven't you finished your novel yet i mean it's an easy answer it's because i'm afraid it's terrible or i'm afraid it's going to be terrible you know it's not because you know I don't have time. I mean, I, I'm watching this season of The Bachelor. <laughs> what is what is that? Right. You know, I mean, it's just it's just fear. Okay, so <clears throat> I understand that there's a fear component, and I and um, I wrestle with this because sometimes I'm like, you know what, there is a fear component, and maybe it's good that there is some sort of like self doubt, or like maybe there, maybe I'm being honest with myself here. Yeah. Uh, and then let me let me try to further elaborate to bring some more clarity to this. I just had a yeah. conversation on this show with. Uh, a literary agent, Chris Paris Lamb. Okay. And I asked him uh, about 
his, you know, how he became an agent because, you know, you don't go to school and like major and like, yeah, you don't do that. People fall into it or they wind up somehow doing it. Um, it's always like kind of a circuitous path or an accident or something. But, uh, you know, I asked him like, did you ever harbor any literary ambitions? And he said something to me that like made me think, he said, you know, I'm probably like 10% writer. Uh, Hmm. and you know, that's not enough to sustain a person, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess maybe he could write like a book every 10 years or something, but you know what I'm saying? He feels like I'm 10% yeah. writer. I don't, I, and, and I think that that actually like has some real truth in it because you have writers like Joyce Carol Oates and Stephen King and these people who like can just do it. Like, yeah. or you have people who are like so erudite and like just all they do is read and like they have like no television and they live this like, spark, right, right. you know, those people are like a hundred percent writers. Like I, yeah. I'm just not a hundred percent writer, and I, I no. ha- I'm not. I like I do this show. I do all these other things. Like right. I don't wake up every morning thinking like I just want to spend like 15 hours in an imaginary world or like staring at the flash. Yeah, totally. No, that makes me want to die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, that's what I'm like wondering. So now I'm thinking to myself like, what percentage do you have to be at, or, or should you be at, in order to just like be like, okay, I am enough of a writer to keep doing this or if i'm like 38 percent writer <laughs> like maybe i should yeah. do, do you know what i'm saying like it really that's, made that's a good question yeah. i don't know like a kinsey scale for writers yes exactly because i think that's that what we need it's, ne- it's never been like articulated quite like that to me but there's no way that all these people who are writing fiction and calling themselves writers and publishing books and stories and whatnot there's no yeah. way that everybody can be like operating at no. ma- max no like, max writer capacity some of us are just sure. different speeds you know that's interesting yeah i would i would like to see a breakdown of what percentage writer i would be okay and, and let me ask you this i will <laughs> i'm gonna put i'm putting all this on you i want you to answer my my questions but okay. like do you think it's possible through force of will or some sort of like you know internal discipline thing that you like ratchet up your writerly percentage like is that the issue like it's not like these people are inherently 100% writers, yeah. but they just willed themselves to be that. And the 38% writer who's like sitting there in like a neurotic, you know, mode of stasis just <laughs> needs to like get their shit together and like develop a more iron will or something. Well, I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. Like, I, I imagine there's probably some amount of your percentage that's flexible, like that you could spend on X or Y. You know, like, this maybe this will resonate with you or maybe not, but I definitely feel like I could never be a hundred percent writer because I have to be some percentage parent, which is hugely time consuming and not only time consuming, but you know, like energy consuming or emotion consuming, you know, but that's a percentage of my hundred that I've chosen to dedicate to something else that if I hadn't, maybe I could have put towards writing. Yeah, but I mean, like these 100% right. Like Stephen King has three kids or more kids. I don't know. Like there's there's writers who have all these kids and they're yeah, still that's true. they're cranking it out. So they're just better people than I am. <laughs> well, you and me, you and me both, or they're neglecting their children. Um, yeah, let's go with that. That'll make me feel better. Yeah, exactly. These people, they're just absentee parents. God, writing all these Stephen books. King, what a terrible, terrible parent. <laughs> well, actually, he was kind of a terrible parent, wasn't he? Like substance abuse, abusing, like addicted to alcohol and drugs and all that kind of stuff while his kids were growing up? Uh, I, you know, I don't know the details. I think he got sober when they were really young. That's what I think okay. it was. But, you know, I, 
I think he's a, I mean, I just read that New York Times book review piece on their family and they seem like a good family. I mean, okay, well, thanks, Brad. <laughs> sorry for, sorry to, <laughs> sorry to squash your dream, but, uh, you know, it's interesting stuff. I, I wrestle with it and I, I, you know, it's, it's like trying to manage like you are, like I have a young child and it's like trying to manage, uh, that balance and like make enough money and like, sure. you know, do something that's actually interesting to me so that my life isn't spent you know, just chasing money and some horrible, right. you know, it's like, it's all very, right. it's difficult to find that balance. And, um, I'm wondering, like, do you, you seem like a pretty practical person who has like an accurate, rational view of the marketplace. Like, do you sit there thinking to yourself, uh, one day I'm going to be a fiction writer who makes her living solely by what she writes, or do you have a more modest, um, view of the future of your publishing career? Yeah, I think I definitely have a more, a more modest view. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm definitely an optimist, but I think some of my optimism comes from, like, an inherent pessimism. <laughs> so it's like I'm an optimist because I'm always pleasantly surprised <laughs> that things don't go as terribly as I think they will. But, no, I don't see... I don't see myself making a living off of my writing. But, you know, who knows? I mean, they're, like... Five years ago, I probably would have told you I don't ever see myself publishing a book because it just seems so hard and, you know, and I've done that. So, you know, I don't want to, like, tank myself by saying these things out loud, but... Um, do you believe that Do you believe that saying things like that out loud has an impact? Well, I... I not in, like, a juju way, but, like, a... You know, I don't know. Like, what if some I'm querying some agent and she Googles me and she hears this podcast and she's like, <laughs> oh, I don't want a client who's not going to try to make her living off her writing. Yeah, right. You know, well, like, I don't want something like weird like that to happen. Well, but I have this friend who like, because I, I'll talk about anything, <clears throat> anything as most people who listen to this show could probably surmise <laughs> like, you know, and so I'll say things and like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like I'm a loose cannon, but I just like. I'll be like, oh, God, you know, everything's fucked or like there's no way this will happen or uh-huh. I'll sometimes voice things that are dark. Sure. And and not just like, you know, in some sort of like wanton, uh, you know, fashion. It's like I'm thinking it through and being like, oh, God. And then like my friend the other day was like, don't say that. Don't put that out into the world. <laughs> and then I got all self-conscious and I'm like, shit, is that, oh, is that no. what, is that what I've been doing my whole life? And like, got in your head. have I sabotaged, have I sabotaged myself by like putting things out into the world? And like, I don't know how to scrub my mind of that. And like, maybe it's just a, it's a discipline thing where you've got to like, just let that thought go and then come up with a more positive thought. And I don't know. It's like affirmations. You to, or yeah. You have to read that Oprah book, the secret. Isn't that what that's about? <laughs> Isn't know. it all about like, you know, putting like you're supposed to say into the universe like i will get a new job and then you'll get a new job oh man i don't know i don't know like sometimes i think like i think i might just be wired in a way that's not good <laughs> well uh, don't put that out in the universe yeah but that's see that's terrible. the thing that's the kind of thing i'll say i'll be like yeah. you know, i can't i like the secret like i can't <laughs> i can't like even if that's true i can't do that like that's, sure. It's so it's so inherently ridiculous to me anyway uh, that like I could never in like I, like even if I tried to do that I would be internally going like this is ridiculous and I'd be laughing and like snickering at it which I think would then drain it of its actual goodness and vitality or something like I just don't know yeah. I don't know if I as a person am hardwired to be able to 
you know, succeed. If that is indeed what you need to succeed and, you know, make your way in this world and climb whatever mountain there is to climb. And uh, I also sometimes wonder about, like, do you ever look at the world, like not only the publishing world, but like the broader world, and you think about like what it takes to like maneuver and make the right contacts and like climb and uh, it can seem exhausting to ponder to me. And I, there, some people are like energized by that or they, or they just yeah. have like great instincts or they're just like, yeah. or they're just like ruthless and like they will kill for what they want and they don't give a fuck. And like that, that gets rewarded a lot in our, in our world. And like, there's a part of me that's like, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me. <laughs> like maybe- no, that's true. Yeah. Most of that, that kind of stuff that has happened to me, you know, like if I know the right people or, you know, say the right thing or whatever has happened like totally by accident, which, right. which is, I consider myself very lucky, but I do know what you mean about, yeah, I don't think I would have the energy for that either. I'm also like horribly socially awkward and, are you, you, know, you, you don't, seem, don't, you don't seem socially awkward, make a very good first impression. That's good. You don't make, you don't make a good first impression. No, I don't think I do. Why? Well, well, one, because I'm so, like, awkward. It's difficult for me to, like, go up to people I don't know and start talking to them. And then also because I have this, like, stupid thing where, uh, with my face, where I um, had this big crush on Rod Serling as a child, you know, the host of The Twilight Zone. Sure, yeah. And I, I really wanted to be able to raise one eyebrow like he does. <laughs> and so I used to use ice, like a chunk of ice, to numb my eyebrow my right eyebrow so that I could raise just my left one in the mirror. Does that work? Well, uh, yeah, really well. But it turns out I did some like permanent nerve damage to my right eyebrow from repeatedly like (laughs) numbing it with ice. And so now I can't lift it at all. So my right eyebrow is completely paralyzed on my face. And my left eyebrow is like expressive, like a normal human. But the result of that is, like, any time you would normally raise both eyebrows, like when you're looking interested or happy or surprised or delighted, I always look, like, skeptical or sarcastic or suspicious. This is maybe one of my favorite anecdotes that I've heard from everybody about their life. This is and this I'm, is a, and this is like also you know I, I don't mean to laugh at your misfortune, but it's a yeah, sure. it's a funny way to be feeling awkward, and it's all you can you can just blame Rod Serling, which makes it even better. It's terrible, and you know I don't even remember it most of the time because I just feel like I'm going around living my normal life, <laughs> and the only way I start to remember that it's happening are when people start doing it back to me. So like someone will say something like you know oh, like, I, I can't come to class tomorrow or whatever. My grandfather died. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm so sorry. And I'm trying to look surprised. And then they look back at me, like, with this horrified look. And they're like, I can bring you his obituary. And I'm like, ah, I'm sorry. I just I can't raise my eyebrow. So how many, how many times have you had to explain the whole thing about your eyebrow and the ice? And oh, my God. I think I've told this story, like, a zillion times and some of it too is just like now i'm starting to get wrinkles only on one side of my head and like my my <laughs> face is starting to look just permanently crooked from my right eyebrows just like hangs there you know uh, it's like how did you even learn that you could ice and i didn't even know you could ice an eyebrow like is that how you do that you can train your i mean where did you get this no from? i mean i was just a kid i was like eight years old so it was it wasn't like, there was no logic to it. Like, I, what I used to do is I used to go in front of the mirror in my parents' bathroom, and I would hold down my right eyebrow with my hand and lift my left eyebrow. Like, that's how I would try to, like, practice this. And then I figured, 
I don't know, probably just from being outside in the cold and understanding how it, like, numbs your face, that I could just, like, numb it. And I could. And then, you know, bad idea. Will you, would it be too much to ask for you to, like, tweet me a photo of you with one eyebrow up? <laughs> I want to see I, this. Those are the only photos I have, Brad. <laughs> of course I can do that. <laughs> Uh, when your episode goes live, we should. I feel like we should provide a visual for listeners. It's only fair. That sounds good. Yeah, I actually, I just put this thing up on my blog. Did you see the BuzzFeed thing that was like the 22 creationists asking questions about evolution? No. It, you know, they're holding up these signs that are like, doesn't thermodynamics disprove evolution? You know, and then <laughs> another person holds up a sign and it's like, how do you explain a sunset if there's no God? So I just did this thing on my blog, which was like, 22 responses where I'm just, it's just pictures of me holding up a notebook with the answers to these questions. Like, <laughs> how do you explain a sunset? Here's how you explain a sunset, like, you idiot. And in all of them, like, I'm making these silly faces because their questions are so silly. And someone actually, like, wrote me a note and was like, I love your eyebrows. And I had to, like, tell them the story. I was like, wow, thank you. <laughs> um, that's awesome. And uh, I think, have you written a formal essay about this eyebrow thing? Like no, I don't. I don't know that it would translate to an essay. I think it's just like, it's like you said. It's a funny like anecdote at a party or whatever. But I don't know if it has any like real like. What's like the deep meaning there? I mean, there's no meaning. It's just. I mean, or you maybe know. you could build a short story out of it, like just human misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where like something. I don't know. I feel like there's something yeah. there that needs to be mined. But uh, I have really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time, and I congratulate you on the uh, on the collection. Thank you so much. No, it's been great, and uh, and I appreciate you having me. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Aubrey Hirsch. Go get her story collection. It's called Why We Never Talk About Sugar, and it's out there now from Braddock Avenue Books. You can find Aubrey on the Internet at AubreyHirsch.com, and she's also on the Twitter where her handle is at Aubrey Hirsch. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, as always. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget... Uh, about that free audiobook download over at Audible either. If you want a free audiobook download with a free uh, trial, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, the address is audibletrial.com slash other people. Uh, last but not least, please go get that other people app. Go get the app. It's free. And then once you're there, uh, you can sign up for free, uh, for premium. That is not free, but it's almost free. It's two bucks a month. You do that, you can hear everything. You can hear Elizabeth Ellen. Uh, and how, you know, she and her ex-husband got engaged while on LSD. And, uh, you know, you have access to the full archives of this program. Hundreds of episodes just for you. So, uh, I think that's it. Uh, thanks to Amber. Was it Amber? Hang on a second. Amanda. Shit. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda, for writing me such a nice email. Uh, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you listening. If you guys would like, if anybody out there would like to, uh, email me, the address is letters at other You can also leave me a voicemail over at the show's official website. You can talk into the voicemail over at other Just click on send voicemail over at the right side of the page. Please remember that Paul Bowles died of a heart attack and that Jane Bowles died after a stroke. That's it for now. Thanks again to Aubrey Hirsch. Thanks to Braddock Avenue Books. Go check them out. And uh, thanks to my listeners, and particularly uh, my Twitter follower listeners, the people who follow me on Twitter over at, um, at OtherPeoplePod, uh, for making such a good round of suggestions. 
uh, a lot. Please know that a lot of those guests that you suggested are going to be appearing on this show in the weeks to come. It's going to happen. So get ready for that. Uh, okay. That's it. I feel like this is a clumsy wrap up, but it's always a clumsy wrap up. This is where I flail. You know that, uh, I've had enough. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to wander around Hollywood. Uh, maybe I'll see some celebrities. Maybe I'll, I'll go to Whole Foods and I'll just loiter. You ever loiter in Whole Foods? (laughs) 